The shock of the attack on our capital on January 6th was because this is not who we are. Well, what if it is who we are? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. The shockwaves of the violent insurrection of January 6th continue. Our guest today writes, in response to the events in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, politicians and journalists were quick to insist that, quote, this is not who we are. But perhaps in saying that, in seeking to diminish the more troubling reality that that actually is a longstanding part of who we are, the politicians and journalists are unwittingly doing who we really are a disservice. There is a long history of reactively relegating violent extremists as unconnected, unexplainable lone wolves, and that has proven to be to our peril. Are these perpetrators far out of the norm, and they just spring up from nowhere? Our guest today, Professor Verena Erlenbush Anderson, argues that the insurrectionary actions unfolding on Capitol Hill were the doing of pro-Trump extremists and domestic terrorists. But a look at history suggests that in many ways, these events have a long tradition in this country, end of quote. Are they truly exceptional and un-American? Much as we might wish so, they're not. If we fail to look hard at the context and our history and instead diminish the actions and relegate them to being just lone nuts, perhaps we are increasing the danger. Her essay is published in the History News Network titled Confronting Who We Are. Thank you very much for being with us today, Verena. Hi, thank you for having me. Verena is a political theorist who works on terrorism and political violence. Such fun. She's the author of Genealogies of Terrorism, Revolution, State Violence, Empire. She regularly teaches courses in the philosophy of law. Well, as a forever student of World War I, I can imagine how the government of Serbia must have insisted that Gavrio Princip, the young man who actually fired the bullets that killed Austria's Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie, how he was a deranged extremist lone actor. But of course, he was part and uh, he was he was part of a plot, and though the government seems to have had no direct connection, the ever-mounting Serbian nationalist sentiment certainly provided the nourishment for that plot. The government desperately tried to distance themselves from the young killer, but Austria made war on them anyway. Not to bore the listener with my own fetish for trying to understand why the insane, meaningless Great War happened as it did, but I wonder if there might be lessons to be learned relative to current attempts to say this is not who we are. Your thoughts? Right. So I'm not an expert on the history of World War One. So um, let's see if I can um, say something interesting here. Um, I mean, I think there's the general point that you made, right, which is that Princip wasn't a loner. Um, he was a member of the Black Hand, which... Uh, was a paramilitary movement that pursued the unification of um, southern Slavs in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so this was a a nationalist and actually an anti-imperial movement. And so um, I guess for me, um, the episode highlights the sort of broader context of imperial expansion um, that gave rise to efforts in national self-determination, 
Um, and, and it also highlights the violent response of an empire to challenges to its power. And so it's a good reminder um, to keep imperialism and colonialism in view when we think about political violence. Um, but if I can add a, a second sure. point that's a little bit more in my in my wheelhouse, um, the assassination of, of Franz Ferdinand was actually also a pivotal moment um, that led what was then the League of Nations and you know what's today the, the United Nations uh, to develop a category of terrorism in international law. Um, so you know traditionally assassinations had been regarded as um, political crimes. Uh, whose perpetrators were protect, protected from um, extradition to the jurisdiction of the state whose representatives they had attacked. Um, and there was a push to change that in 1854 after an assassination attempt on Napoleon III. Um, but the League didn't really implement any you know, major systematic changes until after World War One, and that was partly to prevent another war like after Franz Ferdinand's assassination assassination. And so, um, so by the 1930s, you know, terrorism was pretty firmly defined as um, anti-state violence. Um, but there was also quite a bit of flexibility for states to identify acts of terrorism in the moment, depending on whether they thought peace and order were in danger. And so, you know, this is the framework that we're still working with today. And so, you know, uh, Princip is part of that history of how we became who we are. Anti-state violence, and uh, there's many, many, many ways to uh, unleash violence. There's from airplanes with expensive uh, guidance systems, and then there's uh, people who on the street make their own weapon systems. And you know, which is the uh, people at at one end could say that the other one is not legitimate, and so this does lead to uh, terrorist attacks and. I wondered, by describing the acts of January 6th as exceptional and un-American in character, might we be putting blinders on ourselves dangerously? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think so. I think that, you know, how we understand a problem or a situation has effects on how we can think about addressing it. Um, and so by describing the Capitol siege in terms that signal its exceptional and un-American character, uh, we already sort of shape how we can respond to it. So, you know, if it's exceptional and un-American, then um, what we need to do is respond to it directly. Um, we don't really need to worry about the, the broader conditions um, that gave rise to the insurrection. So we arrest the worst offenders and then, you know, we move on as we're already um, being told to do. Uh-huh. And, and that's, a, that's a kind of distancing, I think, um, you know, the characterization of what happened as un-American that to me is often a sort of deliberate form of forgetfulness. Uh-huh. Um, so philosophers call this um, willful ignorance, um, by which they mean a, a kind of collective amnesia, right, that we carefully cultivate um, to produce uh, and maintain this idea of American exceptionalism. Um, and that actually prevents us from realizing our ideals. Um, so, I mean, let me also give you a sort of more positive view here, sure. uh, which is that the idea that, um, you know, this is not who we are um, can be maybe read as a sort of aspirational claim, you know, as in um, this is not who we want to be, or uh, we should be better than this. And so if we, 
think about it in this way, then there might actually be an opening for a conversation about, you know, what it means to be American and, and how we might realize the values and the possibilities of, you know, democracy, equality, freedom, and so on that, that we claim as ours, but that we haven't really fully realized yet. And as uh, a previous guest on this show said that uh, the term the United States of America was really aspirational. It wasn't yet who we are. And Lincoln talked about right. toward a more perfect union. So it is interesting that, you know, a lot of people these days are saying, well, find all those who were at the Capitol, round them up and throw them in jail, you know, wipe their hands clean. That's the end of it. I think that's a little bit dangerous. That's that's what we're yeah. talking about here. It's an interesting yeah. dance that the Republican Party is now engaged in. One member of Congress said he went to January 6th, uh, but left before they broke into the Capitol. Mm -hmm. I remember when Barry Goldwater was called an extremist. I don't think the Republican Party has been openly white nationalist insurrectionist in the past. They were never as far right as the John Birch Society until fairly recently, and they've gone way beyond that. Uh, Claire Connor wrote a book called Wrapped in the Flag about her parents who were National Birch Society leaders, and she was shocked in the wake of the 2010 elections when she saw people in Congress to the right of her parents. And it sure didn't start with Trump. Barry Goldwater explicitly warned us against these dangerous religious nationalists, and he was considered to the right. So tell us about the turn to the hard right in the Republican Party. How much do you think it has to do with the fact that the actual president of the United States was a black man. How and when did they, the Republicans, become who they are? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I'm, I'm more um, of a, you know, of an interested observer here. Um, and I think you know this history much better than I do. So um, I certainly think that the presidency of Barack Obama was an important event that, you know, signaled racial progress and then invited um, backlash. Yeah. But I also think that the that this dynamic, right, of racial progress and then white backlash is new. Um, so if we think about the history of the Republican Party, um, you know, this is an argument that um, Republicans often uh, present today that initially was the anti-slavery party right. that fought for civil rights and um, and it was the Democrats who defended slavery and segregation. And, and that's true, right? Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. um, things things changed um, after the Second World War. Um, so Democrats began to support the end of segregation and Southern Democrats were opposed to this. So they seceded from the party um, and they voted along with Southern Republicans against the Civil Rights Act. So there was actually sort of bipartisan Southern alliance against civil rights. And, you know, Goldwater, who you mentioned, won over the South by opposing the Civil Rights Act. And then Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party and joined the Republican Party. And then we got something called the Southern Strategy, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, Nixon. successfully used um, racist dog whistles to mm -hmm. win over the majority of white Southerners. And um, then you add in the long history of voter suppression and you have the recipe, right, for decades of um, Republican grip on the former Confederacy. And so in some ways, right, I think what we're now seeing with Trump is um, a sort of another iteration of this playing out, right? So with Trump, it's no longer dog whistles. Um, it's sort of like yeah. megaphones. Um <laughs> But it, to me, it seems like it's a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. Ah, interesting. Difference in degree, yeah. 
Huh, interesting. I can I can see how that would be the case. It's been there for a long time. Uh, and, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, dismissing it and saying, oh, it's just those oddballs. Mm, I wish it were the case. But we prefer, you talk about right. the intentional uh, ignorance. I, I think, uh, you know, teaching of history depends on erasing things that are uncomfortable, I think. You know, it, 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 unless you erase certain things, people learn too much, and we can't have that now, can we? And talking right. a little bit about history, tell us about the rise of mob violence in the wake of Reconstruction. I recently read about when two candidates for Louisiana governor claimed each of them won in 1874, there was something called the Battle of Liberty Place, where 5,000 members of the White League, a paramilitary terrorist organization captured the state house the armory and the downtown and held it for three days uh they finally left when federal troops restored the elected government no insurgents were charged in that action in the weeks months and years following the battle of liberty place americans decided to look the other way to me the parallels are eerie uh the kkk really burst on the scene in the 1920s the base of angry, sometimes sometimes explosive racism has been a steady presence since the end of the war uh, against Southern independence. So what about this choosing to look away? I mean, I had not heard of this Battle of Liberty Place. It's, it's too disturbing, uh, but it, the, the parallels are, are remarkable. Your thoughts? Yeah, it, it is remarkable, isn't it? And I, and I hadn't heard of, about it either, so... Um... Um, I just read an article about it. It's it's fascinating. Um, and, you know, I'm also currently working in, in the archives on, on congressional hearings about the condition in the South. And this is just a, a treasure trove of, like, relevant um, information that, that we would do well to read today. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not that distant from who we are, although it's it's disquieting and uncomfortable. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Verena Ellenbush-Anderson, who has written an essay on uh, History News Network titled Confronting Who We Are. We're talking about people saying these uh, uh, terrorists who attack the Capitol is not who we are. They're just something else. And, and we're taking a deeper look at that. And you argue that saying the terrorists... Lone wolves is quote insensitive to survivors' experience. How so? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I guess what I want to say is that describing perpetrators of white supremacist violence as lone wolves is usually inaccurate. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it ignores that there is a global far right white supremacist network and that many perpetrators of violence are connected through, you know, online platforms and messaging apps and so on. Um, but it also ignores the larger context of white supremacy in which these individual actors are embedded. Um, and then, you know, I also think that this trope of the lone wolf itself um, can be harmful because it portrays white perpetrators who are usually the ones who are called lone wolves as individuals who act alone. Um, but People of color, on the other hand, are characterized as representative of an entire social group and, and you know, as acting out collective cultural pathologies. 
And so this reflects and, and also perpetuates a view of white people as autonomous individuals and, you know, people of color as basically like an indistinguishable mass, right, in, in inverted commas. Um, and then, you know, the, this idea of the lone wolf um, also usually uh, comes with this idea that the individuals who engage in those acts are crazy or mentally ill or, you know, nut cases. Um, and I mean, I think that's pretty offensive to disabled people, right, who um, aren't typically violent extremists. Um, so it's kind of a, of a it's, it's a smear against disabled people, in a sense, to say that these lone wolves are, you know, mentally ill. Whoa, that's interesting. And yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that way. And I'm thinking about all the so-called lone wolves in our history, the the lone wolf who killed Martin Luther King. Uh-huh. I came right. from, it came from a context that was uh, really there. And uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about with regard to that, too. But, yeah, it, I find it interesting. I, I am a white person. Uh, and until Black Lives Matter, I think most white people saw racism as something, no, that's not me. That's outside my life. It doesn't affect me. Since then, since the Black Lives Matter movement, I think a lot has been done to actually face our ugly history. With regard to the actual acts of racist terrorism, you write that the city and county authorities uh, and the uh, daily papers were as complicit as local media, which issued bulletins detailing the preparations, public transport, which brought people of the surrounding country to witness the event, which was in broad daylight with the authorities aiding and abetting this horror. I wonder if there'd be an audience like this today. And this was about uh, uh, terrorist uh, lynchings and things like that, because uh, they, they happened fairly often in the past. And it, lynchings, you know, were very, very public. I wonder if there'd be like a, an audience like this today. I wonder how much of a part of human nature it is to be fascinated by horror. And you write, about Ida B. Wells, who, again, is not well-known enough. Who was she? How would you say she was prescient, as you say, quote, inviting us to reconsider what we know about white supremacist terrorism in the United States regarding ostensibly isolated incidents are not an exception, but an expression of long-standing social norms? Ida B. Wells, talk about her, please, and what she was saying about this. Yeah, so um, Ida B. Wells Barnett was um, an African-American journalist and an anti-lynching activist. Um, and I think that she's actually one of the most relevant political theorists um, to help us understand the present. Um, she was born into slavery in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Um, and she actually fought racial justice in, in many forms. So, for instance, in um, 1884, you know, she sued a train company in Memphis for throwing her out of a first-class um, carriage, even though she had purchased the first-class ticket. And she initially won the lawsuit, but then, um, you know, the uh, it, it was appealed, and and she ended up losing. Um, but she also wrote about mob violence, which is what she's um, mostly known for, I think. Um, she also worked with other African-American leaders to boycott the World's Columbian Exposition in um, 1893 because there was a complete lack of representation of African-Americans. 
Um, but she also was active internationally. So she traveled to the UK to agitate against lynching in the United States. Mm. Um, and she actually turned to writing about mob violence after three of her friends were lynched by a white mob in Memphis wow. um, in 1892. So, um, you know, she, she says that until that point, she had believed um, the myth that lynching was a punishment for a sexual assault. Um, but she knew that, you know, her friends hadn't sexually assaulted anyone and, and they were actually lynched for defending themselves and, and their grocery store against an attack from um, white competitors. And so Wells began to collect reports about lynchings, um, you know, reports from white newspapers. And she showed that in less than a third of the cases, actually, an accusation of rape had even been made. Um, and she also documented quite a lot of um, instances in which white men had raped black women and girls um, without punishment. And so this evidence led her to reject the idea that lynching was a punishment for rape. And so instead, she argued um, that this kind of mob violence was a means to enforce what she called the unwritten law of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, this idea of the, of the unwritten law is interesting because in contrast to the written law, so the Reconstruction Amendments that had abolished slavery and guaranteed equality under the law um, and prohibited disenfranchisement based on race, um, this unwritten law was a sort of, you know, social contract, if we can call it that, yeah, sure. um, that effectively established, um, you know, a polity based on white domination and white superiority. Um, and Wells argued that you could see this in the fact that mob violence wasn't just perpetrated by individuals, yes. but it was aided and abetted by, you know, political institutions, law enforcement, the media, and so on, like um, you read the quote earlier. Um, and she also said that it wasn't just directed against the individuals right. that were the immediate direct victims of violence, but it had a larger, you know, messaging effect, if you will. Um, for the whole community. And so for Wells, uh, white supremacy wasn't just the sort of extremist belief, you know, that some um, radicalized individuals held, but it was actually the background condition um, of our political system that was enforced through systematic intimidation and, um, you know, the elimination of anyone who opposed white superiority. Um, and so the violence is just bringing to the foreground what's usually going on tacitly in the background. Uh -huh. um, and to me, right, this understanding of white supremacy, not as an exception, but as the norm, but the sort of background condition, is one thing um, that is particularly relevant today, because it allows us to make connections between things that otherwise can seem quite disconnected. So, you know, the capital siege is... is one example, but I think this is also connected to, you know, the, the Trump administration's disastrous response to the pandemic, um, which is, you know, disproportionately um, affecting communities of color. Um, it's also connected to the border wall. Um, it's connected to Trump's last minute execution spree, yes. which um, targeted a, a disproportionate number of disabled people. Um, and so on and so forth. And so, 
you know, you were asking whether there is an audience today for, for this kind of mm-hmm. spectacular, horrific violence. Um, and so, um, to my mind, you know, her emphasis on the communicative function of mob violence, just beyond its direct victim, um, is, is really helpful here. Um, so some people have argued that when we look at cases of vigilante violence or police violence against black people, um, that are then, you know, broadcast on news sites or live streams mm-hmm. on Facebook and so on. Um, this isn't so different from the lynching bees, um, where, you know, photographs were taken and, um, and so on. Um, and so the, the availability of these like live streaming and video recordings is sort of a double edged sword. Cause on the one hand, mm. you know, there's now evidence of the brutality, um, even though typically it doesn't really lead to punishment. Um, but on the other hand, there is a spectacle of violence that's broadcast on TV and the internet. Um, and often without warning, right? So you'll watch the news and all of a sudden you see these images. Um, and so then, you know, imagine what message that sends both to would-be perpetrators, but also victims. Interesting. Very uh, illuminative, the, the whole spectacle aspect of it. People do seem to like spectacles. And you're reminding me of my old college professor, the long-departed Daryl Baskin, who defined politics as the economy of violence. It sounds like that's exactly what you're talking about. I took that to mean when, you know, we see police officers. We don't need to experience the violence to know it's there. They can legitimately, you know, beat us with billy clubs. And as black people too often know, they can do basically whatever violence they want. And so, you know, it's it's not outside of, of any context. It's who has the legitimate violence and who doesn't. And, you know, people, some people, uh, there's terrorists and freedom fighters. Who is which? It's, it depends on, on uh, the audience that's, that's looking at it. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about confronting who we are, how the uh, violent uh, terrorists on January 6th, it's not not who we are. Unfortunately, it's been going on for a while. Um, and what about the definition of the word terrorism? W- what the white settlers did to the inhabitants of North America, the bombing of London in World War II, Cambodia by Kissinger and Nixon, Dresden, Hiroshima, and now the Saudi terror bombing Yemen using our equipment. These are all carried out with costly and sophisticated delivery systems. What was the purpose and intention, do you think, of Bush and Cheney's so-called war of terrorism? I mean, what is or is not defined as an act of terrorism seems to say a lot about who we are. For example, you mentioned the 2015 incident at San Bernardino, California, which was called an act of terrorism, but the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas was not. Was the Vegas shooter... Uh, what is the Vegas shooter? What would have happened, do you think, had he been Muslim and not white? There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so there is a lot there. Let me start maybe with um, your point about the definition of the word terrorism, and then I'll talk about you know, Bush and Cheney and, and, uh, and then the last question. Um, so there isn't one accepted definition of terrorism. Um, in fact, you know, in the 1980s, uh, a researcher, Alex P. Schmidt, um, 
found that there were over 100 different definitions of terrorism in law right. and in the scholarly literature. Um, and I think that is because defining terrorism is always a, a political act, mm. right, that seeks to establish a particular claim or interest. Um, and so because of that, the word terrorism is used in many different ways, and um, it allows people to do a variety of different things. So, you know, when we call somebody a terrorist, we can do things to them that we can't do when uh, we describe uh-huh. them as a, you know, lawful combatant, for example. Um And so given that, my own view is that it's much more important to ask, you know, what the stakes are in calling something terrorism rather than quibbling over whether something is really um, an act of terrorism. And so, you know, that leads me to to your point about um, the war on terrorism, Bush and Cheney. So, um, you know, if we want to figure out the purpose of the war on terrorism, then I think we should start by asking how terrorism is understood here. What, you know, what, what do we mean by terrorism in this context? And so if we look at national security policy, then um, the notion of terrorism that's used here is, is pretty you know, amorphous and, and vague. So it applies to tyrants and dictators. It applies to rogue states. Um, it applies to certain belief systems. So most importantly, Islam, of course, but also communism. Um, it applies to particular racial identities, um, in particular Muslims and Arabs. Um, it, you know, also applies to criminal actions or tactics of warfare and, and other things. Um, and so terrorism is, is both vague, but it's also everywhere. Um, and it's uncertain, but it's also imminent, right? So about to happen at every moment. And so it's this kind of general security threat that, um, actually allows for a whole range of mechanisms of prevention and defense against all kinds of threats, right? So it's not just violent aggression. Um, It's also immigration. It's, you know, limitations on free trade that are dangerous. It's violations of human rights. It's um, oil depletion. It's drug trafficking. It's Mm. disease and so on. Um, And so I think by declaring a war on terrorism, right, Bush and Cheney, we're able to pursue a whole range of U.S. interests globally, that it was much more difficult to pursue without this, you know. Um, so in, during the French Revolution, uh, journalists called terrorism the magic word, and I think that, you know, that's a good description. It's like a magic word um, that that allowed for the pursuit of longstanding interests, right? Um, so it was an opportunity uh, to implement um, measures, right? That it would have been much more difficult to implement otherwise. Wow. So yeah, go ahead. There was, um, there was something else, right? You asked about, oh, right. Um, what if the Vegas right. shooter had been Muslim? Yes. Um, right. So I think it's likely that the response would have been quite different. Um, but if you take the San Bernardino incident, um, you know, it was first reported before uh, the identity of the perpetrators was known. It was reported as a mass shooting. Um, and it wasn't until the suspects were identified um, that the rhetoric changed to terrorism. So the suspects were an American citizen of Pakistani uh, descent mm-hmm. and a Pakistani-born permanent resident. And so they were Muslims. And so 
um, the rhetoric changed to terrorism. Um, but then the, the Las Vegas shooting, right? Even there, there was some confusion about whether it was terrorism because at one point, um, ISIS claimed that Stephen Paddock, who um, was the perpetrator, acted on its behalf. And so the FBI later denied that claim. But I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, even a white perpetrator like Paddock is a candidate for the terrorism label, depending on um, the political beliefs that motivate them. Um, and so vice versa, right? People of color um, can escape the terrorism label depending on their ideology. So um, think of, you know, um, Enrique Tarrio, who's the leader of the Proud Boys. And, um, you know, the Proud Boys were, mm-hmm. those are the ones that Trump told to stand down and to, uh, or uh, stand, stand by, by and yes. they stood by to fill the Capitol. And so Tarrio is Afro-Cuban. Um, so what this shows, I think, is that, you know, the, this notion of terrorism is what um, some scholars call a fighting word. Um, it's pretty flexible. It's pretty capacious. It usually serves as a marker of foreignness in the sense of something mm-hmm. being, you know, un-American, not who we are. Um, and I guess, um, can I add a thought about oh, um, the question itself, you know, whether whether the response would have been different if the perpetrator had been Muslim? Um, I think, it, you know, it comes up a lot, this question. Um, and it's usually an attempt to point out hypocrisy, right? Um, so I think that's right. But I think there's also a danger because it might suggest that, um, you know, it's okay that Muslims are treated that way. And what we need to be is just, you know, consistent and also treating white people that way. Um, but I, you know, I think like no one should be treated that way. And so I guess, um, you know, I, I think we should just be careful in, in using appeals to hypocrisy. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about their effectiveness yeah. um, as a political strategy, if that makes sense. Sure. I, you're the scholar. I, I am not. I'm just an amateur uh, history <laughs> reader. And uh, it, it reminds me of, you know, I guess the word terrorism is like the term beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Who's a terrorist and who's a freedom fighter? And I certainly remember after September 11th, the creation of uh, the uh, Patriot Act, for example, as well as Homeland Security. Whoa. That term, homeland security, what I mean, that can really empower a very uh, intrusive state, uh, you know, spying on us and you know, people reporting on one another. It's a, as you say, it's a convenient word. Terrorism is a very convenient word to throw around, and I I do find it interesting that on January sixth, uh, as you say, the mob attempted to do what President Trump and his enablers were unable to do. Uh, what do you mean by that? And I guess that that is in many ways who we are. What did they do? What uh, Trump? Obviously, I mean, if the uh, the Senate trial on his uh, second impeachment were to go on on the law, uh, he would ob- it'd be a slam dunk case that he obviously incited the riot. But of course, it's political by design in the Constitution. It's political. But uh, so what? You know, how is this, the mob, 
I guess the right wing people, the Republicans are trying to say, oh, no, that mob. No, no, they weren't Trump. They weren't Republicans. But it does seem that there are a lot of uh, Republicans uh, who, I don't know, they, they say, no, this is not us. And yet they still insist that what the, the thing that motivated the mob was stolen elections, stop the steal. Your thoughts on that? And right. how, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with what you just said. You know, I said that the this uh, claim about the mob um, doing what what the president was unable to do is is a reference to Ida B. Wells, um, who wrote that lynching was a practice by which the mob did what the law could not be made to do. Um, and I think it, you know, it applies to the to the Capitol insurrection. So, right for months, Trump peddled his lies about the election being stolen. And um, more than half of the Republican caucus signed a brief um, to ask the Supreme Court to, you know, allow a case to move forward that sought to overturn the election. And then members of Congress objected to the certification of the Electoral College count. And then Trump called on um, Vice President Pence to yeah. overturn the election. Um, and all of that went nowhere. And so when the legal avenues were exhausted, Trump assembled a mob to do his bidding. And so I think in a very literal sense, the mob tried to do what couldn't be done by legal means. Amazing. Um, but but yeah. also, like, at the same time, um, I think, you know, the mob is, is acting not just in continuity with, um, you know, all these uh, measures that they tried to implement first, but also in continuity with everyday practices um, that, that serve to maintain white supremacy and the most obvious here are, you know, voter disenfranchisement, voter purges, ID laws, um, gerrymandering, felony disenfranchisement, and so on. So, you know, I think these are all actions that are sort of part and uh, part of the same strategy. Yeah. You can see how a lot of the people who attacked the Capitol consider themselves Patriots doing what their beloved president wanted to do but couldn't do. So they were acting as good soldiers, you know, as proud, brave, honorable soldiers. Wow. And that, you know, I suppose wars are like that as well. But those are legitimate forms of terrorism. It's not so rare in history that violence and terror has proved to be an effective change agent that... Uh, that establishes new power with legitimacy. For example, in Russia in 1917, as you point out, there was open confrontation with the Tsarist regime military power. There was, as you say, revolutionary terror against the class enemy put into the machinations of the uh, Bolshevik state. So no question, Putin loved Trumpism because it intentionally sparked what was on January 6th terror against the state that he and Trump hated and sought to destroy. And it remains with us. I thought that wasn't who we are, but, uh, you know, it's it's a time-tested, history-proven uh, uh, mechanism that can actually make change. And, and then it becomes legitimate. I'm sure I can't help but think that the people who attacked the Capitol thought that... Uh, yeah, if, when they took over, Trump would be rightfully in power. 
and that, that it was no doubt they thought it was uh, legitimate. Reactions to that, please. Yeah. Um, so I have, I guess I have um, two thoughts here. The first one is that I think you're absolutely right that, you know, Putin loves Trumpism to the extent that he loves whatever might um, lead to the, the breakup of powers like the U.S. or the European Union. So I've been reading a lot of Craig Unger's work on um, the Trump-Russia connection, yeah. um, which I recommend if, you know, if you're interested in this. Um, but, you know, you also make the historical point um, about terror and terrorism being um, sort of at the, at the origin of, of the state. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this reminds me of um, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who um, I draw on a lot in my, in my work, um, who suggested that when we analyze power and politics, um, we should use war as our model. And so he, um, he said that uh, politics is the continuation of war by other means. Uh-huh. And so I guess, um, you know, this is, you know, Carl from Clausewitz famously put it the other way around. Um, so war is the continuation of politics by other means. But, but Foucault asked us to think of politics as basically a continuation of war in, um, in another form. And so, you know, political institutions and laws on, on this view um, are representative of or that they codify relations of domination right Mm -hmm. so they are the victors um accomplishments in a sense and so you know i think um this this is sort of a helpful model because it allows us to ask you know whose interests um the law and political institutions serve Mm -hmm. um but it also sort of um allows us to ask about you know, what gets called violence in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so why do we call something violence as opposed to law, right? If, um, if it's a continuation of war by other means. And I'm thinking about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, how the police came down on that versus how they came down on the white-led attack on the Capitol. And, you know, it was rather a violent violent as part of terrorism, I think, response to uh, Black Lives Matter, but not so violent. In fact, a lot of them were seemingly helpful to the uh, attack on the Capitol. So it is, uh, again, codifying domination, as you say. Fascinating stuff. We're talking, I'm Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm speaking with uh, uh, Verena Erlenbush Anderson, who is a political theorist who works on terrorism and political violence. She's the author of Genealogies of Terrorism, Revolution, State Violence, Empire. And she teaches courses in the philosophy of law. Uh, Thomas Hobbes famously said, Life is short, nasty, and brutish. Politics held together by violence or the threat and legitimate ability to apply violence assumes, I think, Hobbes was right, that life is short, nasty, and brutish. It seems to me that this is all based on an assumption of scarcity, economic shortage and scarcity, because there is a limited good and that life is short, nasty, and brutish because there's just not enough to go around. If one tribe 
has, for example, others must literally fight for theirs, is the only answer to a politics not based on violence is if it is assumed there really is enough to go around. And are we not actually there in the 2020s, if not anywhere near there in our belief systems? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, there's a lot there. I think um, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that Hobbes said that it was life in the state of nature, that yes. without a government that's, um, you know, solitary, poor, nasty, and brutish, and, and short, I think he said. Um, so he thought that, you know, if left to their own devices, human beings try to preserve their lives. Um and if there are scarce resources, then what we need to do is sort of watch our bags, um, grab a, watch our backs, yes. our backs too, but grab as much stuff as we can um, and, you know, kill our competition basically to make sure that we survive. Um, and he thought that we would realize because we are, you know, rational agents that this state of affairs actually um, interferes with our self-preservation. Um, and it makes us more likely to to die pretty soon. Yeah. And so it's rational for us to agree, um, you know, to make a social contract, sure. everyone with everyone else, yeah. um, to establish a government. And that government um, then has the power to decide what we can do and how far we can go to pursue our interests. And so, you know, if um, if we sort of take that at face value, then... Um, what you described to me um, suggests that actually the social contract is broken, right? That we're back on the way to a, mm. to a sort of natural state. Um, so enough of us no longer defer to the government to tell us what is licit to do in pursuit of our interests. And so, you know, if Hobbes is right about um, human nature and how human beings act, and that's actually a pretty scary prospect, I think. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it uh, it seems like a lot of the people on January 6th believe that the government is less legitimate, that it wasn't a legitimate government, that they needed to uh, assert something else, and, and perhaps violently, but uh, justifiably place it into power. Uh, you know, if the social contract is broken, then uh, all bets are off, as they say. And right. you point out that, quote, our conceptional apparatus of terrorism over time has acquired a variety of components that allow us to selectively attribute the term to particular forms of violence, specific kinds of people, certain types of government, and peculiar strategies of warfare, end of quote. It amazes me, amazes me how Trumpists can consider themselves conservative Republicans. They strike me as being so not conservative. I mean, they're not conserving government. They're not conserving the social contract. At least five Republican members of Congress have ties to extremist groups who laid siege to the Capitol. Five people, of course, were killed that day. It was, I think, by my definition, a terrorist mob. And there's, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She says, Muslims don't belong in government. Shootings at Parkland, Sandy Hook, and Las Vegas were staged. Zionist supremacists are secretly masterminding Muslim immigration to Europe in a scheme to outbreed white people. Leading Democratic officials should be executed 
And yet she's welcomed by the Republican caucus. She was made chair of a committee. This apparent normalization of such actions is very frightening to me. A great majority of Republicans still believe the fantasy of a stolen election. And what concerns me very much is that not a few Americans still sympathize, perhaps quietly, with the attack on the Capitol. Homeland Security recently issued a warning of more terrorist violence. It does seem to suggest that, in many respects, this is who we are. What do you think the prospects are for this political direction? Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Yeah. Um, you know, you you mentioned um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, yes. you know, you're right. I think she is um, extreme and dangerous and um you know, if we go by by sort of standards of what would be acceptable in, in any private um, company, probably uh, unfit um, for her job. Um, but at the same time, right, as you point out, I think she won her district with, what, 74% of the vote. So, um, and I just read this morning, right, that she was supported by um, many uh, Republican leaders. And so I think... So one thing that that I think is is interesting here is, or what might be instructive, is the debate about um, whether the insurrectionists and you know the the Republicans like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, should be described as terrorists. Right. Um, so I think when people insist that it was an act of terrorism, um, part of what they're trying to do um, is to get us to think about you know, what it means to have members of Congress supporting the insurrectionists. Like, um, what does it mean to have members of Congress lend support to a terrorist group, right? Um, And in one way, right, that's pointing out the hypocrisy. So, you know, imagine if ISIS had staged the insurrection and members of the squad had acted like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, But I think it's, it's not just about pointing out the hypocrisy, right? It's also about drawing attention um, to the use of the term terrorism um, as a means to mark certain ideas and actions as dangerous and foreign and not who we are, while downplaying and, as you say, normalizing other ideas and suggesting that they are legitimate because they are defending the interests of the American people, right, Um, which is a a fairly exclusive Mm. um, notion of who the American people are. Mm. Yes, it gives quite an impression of, of who we are. And the acceptance of it, it just, uh, you know, again, one person's terrorism is another person's freedom fighter. And that's gone on and on and on. And many, uh, I mean, the I'm sure the uh, people who fought for independence from the British colonies were considered terrorists. No doubt the people in Algeria who fought for independence from France were considered terrorists. The people who fought for independence of Vietnam from France were called terrorists. And and then, you know, Vietnam is the government that it is now. Algeria is the government that it is now. The United States is the government that it is now. So it seems like, you know, gosh, maybe terrorism just... Pfft, it's part of politics somehow or another and controlling it. You know, who has a legitimate use of terror is, is really in question. And, and I think the moment now that is so disturbing is who has the legitimate power of violence? Marjorie Taylor Greene 
is suggesting that uh, one particular group does. And uh, boy, we've seen a lot of that in history. You know, uh, some of my distant relatives in uh, Europe during the Second World War felt the effects of that, for sure. And uh, I don't know, is it is it who we are? And I, I find it fascinating that in the wake of January 6th, a lot of Republicans are, are calling for unity to do as we did after so many other ugly episodes. But the country, I don't think, can come together without truth and accountability. And as President George W. Bush said at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a long name, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and corrects them. Now, that's interesting for George W. Bush, and I used to really not like him. Yeah. And in, 19, in 1917... Emma Goldman said, I loved how she defined patriotism, the kind of patriotism we represent, this is from Emma Goldman, the kind of patriotism we represent is the kind of patriotism which loves America with open eyes. Our relation toward America is the same as the relation of a man who loves a woman, who's enchanted by her beauty, and yet who cannot be blind to her defects. <laughs> this kind of, end of her quote, this kind of pretend patriotism that we saw on January 6th, I think, was violently exclusionary. They, they you know, ins they insisted that that's the, they are the real patriots. It, it amazed me during the election campaign when I saw people driving around in their pickup trucks with Trump flags and American flags. I think perhaps now we need to look at our history and consider the meaning of patriotism as we go forward. Do you see this happening? Can we do this? Is this a spark? I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter movement sparked a lot of thought and a lot of really good things. And, and really, you know, the killing of uh, uh, George Floyd, I think it made a lot of difference. And maybe, maybe, maybe this is a turning point that, that this is something we can learn from. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. What are your thoughts, Verena? Um, yeah, I mean... You know, trying to be optimistic here, I think that the fact that things are coming to a head at the moment um, might actually be a sign that there is an opportunity for conversation, um, that there is an opportunity to, you know, sort of politicize um, ideas and actions that are usually, you know, depoliticized and pathologized with the label terrorism as sort of extremist and fundamentalist and so on. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a political situation, and I think that, um, right, so politics is about disagreement. Um, it's about trying to hash out together um, who we want to be. Um, I think, you know, my hope is that we are ready to confront history um, so that we can, you know, identify who we have become, um, how we have become who we are. Um, and then once we understand how we have become that, maybe we can, you know, do certain things better, undo certain errors and damages and, um, yeah, and work towards this, you know, more perfect union that you mentioned earlier. Yes, we've always been aspirational. And I, I do think it's it's important to look at what is terrorism? Is it something that is outside politics or is it 
just uh, built in to politics and how it gets used and how it gets defined and who has the power to define terrorism. Uh, it's. I think this... You know, I, I do find that history never moves in a straight line. It's always moving in a whole bunch of different directions at the same time. And maybe, maybe we can learn from this. We're not going to just, I mean, it would be nice to just uh, uh, cut the uh, the terrorists on January 6th, cut them out. You know, a lot of people say, oh, just lock them up, put them in jail, and, you know, wash our hands of the entire matter. But it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. We have to learn from this and really look at it and not say that this is outside of normalcy, unfortunately. Well, yeah. fascinating discussion. I don't know if you have any other uh, words of wisdom that you can share with the listeners as to how we might uh, be able to move forward. You know, I think I agree with Emma Goldman, who, who you yes. quoted, that we need to both um, see the beautiful and the ugly. Yes, we do. We do. And I still consider myself a real patriot. I love the Constitution, and uh, I will fight for it, at least on my terms. <laughs> and uh, her essay is uh, on History News Network, which I recommend. It's titled Confronting Who We Are. And uh, Verena Erlenbush Anderson is author of Genealogies of Terrorism, Revolution, State Violence, Empire. Thank you so much for being with us today. A very... Uh, Oh, it's some getting into the weeds here, but it's some thick stuff that we need to we need to learn to figure out how we can be more, dare I say, civil. Thank you. Thank you.